Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, just for a change, we have a pair of guests, Sarah Dillon and Claire Craig. Sarah Dillon is Professor of Literature and the Public Humanities in the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Claire Craig is Provost of the Queen's College, Oxford, and has extensive experience in providing scientific evidence to senior decision makers in government and business. Together, they have written Story Listening. In it, they provide a theory and a practice for gathering narrative evidence that will complement and strengthen, not distort, other forms of evidence, including evidence from science. The book explores where decisions are strongly influenced by contentious knowledge and powerful imaginings. Examples, climate change, artificial intelligence, the economy, nuclear weapons, and power itself. It focuses on the cognitive and collective functions of stories, showing how they offer alternative points of view, create and cohere collective identities, function as narrative models, and play a crucial role in anticipation. Welcome to FuturePod, Sarah and Claire. Nice to be here, Peter. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So, you said you've heard a couple of future pods, so you know the first question is the story. So, what is the Sarah Dillon and Claire Craig story? How did you get involved and end up writing a book called Story Listening? So it's a good question. Sometimes I, I wonder how it happened. It happened, I think we met, Claire can correct me if I've got the date wrong, in 2017, I think, mm. when Claire was involved in setting up a wonderful project on AI narratives. So the stories around artificial intelligence, how they inform public perception, decision making, the science itself. And I was very lucky to be pulled in on that project because of my love of science fiction, my interest in the intersection between science and literature. I'd also been doing for some time quite a lot of, of public work, broadcasting with the BBC. It's very interested and keen to think about how the kind of work I do in the literature department could take itself out to other places and be helpful and useful mm. in other environments. So we we met there. And of course, Claire was already at that point quite well established in futures, weren't you, Claire? <laughs> Don't know about that, but carry on. <laughs> And so we, we worked on that project for a while and then we were at a big event in London and we were sitting having a drink and, and Claire said, shall we do something together? I was like, yes, we should do something together. So I said, shall we write a little book? And uh, four, four years later, <laughs> after all other projects had then been abandoned, the little book is about to enter the world and it's not so little anymore. So <laughs> uh, that, that, that's my version. Do you have a different version, Claire? No, no. Um, I mean, it was fantastic, to be honest, because for me, at least, it, it, this sort of sense of, uh, I mean, way back, I worked in science advice, kind of particularly in the British government and worked for part of the time on a project, on a programme called uh, Foresight, which some, some may have heard of. I mean, for a long time, I'd begun to feel the kind of lack of 
uh, or the difficulty of bringing in all sorts of humanities knowledge. You know, you, you spend millions of pounds or mm. hundreds of millions of pounds on your computational model of the climate and then kind of leave it to almost to the politicians to have free reign in terms of what that might mean for, for kind of publics and for society. So finding somebody from the humanities side that actually wanted to talk about this problem was was brilliant. And then, like so many, I think, I know that I've learned a lot from listening to stories in, in my life and wanted to make sense of that as well. So it's been a fascinating journey. And of course, having to complete the book during the pandemic, which in fact was perfect because with one, because we were separated, we could work really seamlessly. I mean, at times with a kind of hive, hive mind, hive brain, mm. um, writing the book at the same time, which, which, um, which you couldn't have done a few years ago. Yeah, we're, we're, we're well used, Peter, to talking to each other through, through the computer. We've spent many, many hours <laughs> doing that. In fact, we went, we went a good uh, full year and a bit without seeing each other in person mm. um, at the most intense period of writing the book. So It's not just the literature and just the humanities, but it's that ability to actually make it meaningful for really the broader community need. Has, has that always been something that's been with each of you or something that has grown? through your through your career that's it's a really good question um obviously when you start out as a as a phd student you're just narrowly focused on you know your discipline and mastering it and making a contribution to it Mm. but as i moved into a job and started to do some radio work and other things it became almost a, a matter of urgency to me that i thought about how what i did in my relatively narrow sphere could have consequences and impact elsewhere and I had met that need through doing the broadcasting, but I had started to realise I wanted to take it into other areas like policy and decision making, where I wasn't seeing the kinds of knowledge and the kinds of evidence that that my discipline and the humanities produce. There was a desire to take it seriously and incorporate it, but a lack of framework and understanding on how to do so. So that was where my kind of urge to do it came. And that was why uh, meeting Claire, who who has you know extensive experience in that sector, was really important. And it's also been a big learning curve because because I've always been the kind of with the humanities academic hat on, making sure everything is is rigorous according to humanities principles. And and Claire, whilst entirely supporting and ensuring we do that, has also always been reminding us that we we have a we have a practitioner audience and we have to write and speak and communicate in ways that that get our message across to them it's been quite difficult to do that in a in a single monograph and i think in the end the balance shifted towards having a book that was really rigorous and provi- provided a good theoretical foundation and then it's really important to us and claire might want to add to this to to then do lots of things you know like this wonderful podcast around the book that helps to to translate it so to speak into different languages for different audiences for me, this, this, I think the answer to your question goes back. Um, I, I was uh, a postdoc because I did a PhD and was doing research um, and in geophysics and had some colleagues who were doing seismology. And it was one of those kind of uh, defining moments when they did a, a small paper which showed that they were studying earthquakes in Greece and Turkey. And it showed that the size of the earthquake was less important to how many people died than the building materials that we use locally. Mm. So one of the things I thought, gosh, I could spend my life working out sort of just slightly more fine detail what earthquakes were like, or I could kind of get out there and start being involved in building regulations. Well, I haven't actually been involved in building regulations, but I had a bit of that sense of urgency and then spending a lot of time working on science advice in government 
which of course has become much more visible, um, I think in many countries during the pandemic and the mechanisms for it have become more visible. But, you know, it's just like there's so much, so much knowledge in, in, in research in all disciplines that just doesn't get to the decision makers and the publics in the way that it could because because the incentives on researchers are to be good researchers which is fine but it then means that there's a kind of time lag between knowledge being created and it being used to inform either immediate decisions or what we're sort of more involved talk about here or involved in in sort of shaping and informing uh, anticipations so I got really interested in that kind of gap and how to make that gap between the, the knowledge that, that exists or could exist and decisions and debates that influence the world now and in the future. Kind of, you know, how you can build bridges across that gap and story listening is part of that. With the narrative turn and, and the pivot into the actual humanities and literature as a way to, if you like, structure support decision making and it strikes me as odd given that in the past particularly political leaders and particularly in England I'm thinking of people like the Israeli and Churchill were actually writers as well as political figures and I'm not saying that that their writing was part of their political strategy but they definitely were comfortable and communicating through humanities and also taking a policy leadership role and which kind of begs the question of are you returning or reinforcing things that we used to do or are you in fact bringing forward a set of capacities that are that are really novel that's such a fascinating question uh, I mean, I can I can answer it a little bit thinking about the humanities, but Claire, actually, I've never asked you this in terms of your knowledge of kind of the history of of the types of evidence that's been taken into account in decision making, and you know when scientific evidence became or was the the dominant form. Do, do you know? Uh, sorry to put you on the spot, but I'm really curious. Do you know about that history? I uh, don't think I do in any useful way. The um, the British Academy has done a little bit of work on how on how policy has been formed in the past. Uh, but I think, to be honest, I think I think that part of the, the key answer to Peter's question is that um, what he's talking about may be more about what storytelling than story listening. Mm. One of the things we try to be trying to be kind of clear about or make a distinction about in the book is this, you know, it, it, there's quite there is quite a lot of, of thought about telling stories including actually advice to scientists on you know you must tell a story about your work or and 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 politicians obviously are good at telling stories Mm. what we're interested in is listening to stories and the skill of listening to them and and that's that's a much less observed and interrogated activity yeah and and the other thing i mean that to give a kind of contemporary example to your disraeli and churchill i mean someone like obama mm. um is very well read and publishes his you know annual list of favorite books and one of the things we're also trying to get away from in the book is the idea that if only all politicians or um you know futures practitioners read read more stories they would be you know more empathetic and wiser and make better decisions that that's just not an argument that we're interested in making one because we're interested in listening to stories and their functions and effects at collective levels so not their influences on you know elite individuals but also because we spend the first chapter arguing against the idea that engaging with stories makes you more empathetic 
and that actually what it does is offers multiple different points of view on the system that you need to be thinking about in relation to the decisions that you're making. So we're very much moving away from that kind of charismatic figure and his or her engagement with stories to thinking much more about about the collective and the collective impacts. There may well be something in the sort of historical evolution that you're talking about from Disraeli to do with the disaggregation of disciplines and the specialisation within disciplines. So the the numbers of researchers, you know, has gone up dramatically and and continues to go up really rapidly with um, increasing wealth across around the world. And the specialisation within disciplines increases. So the risk of public debate and decision making being informed only by, um, you know, one sort of evidence mm. notoriously sort of it's at the end of the last century and in fact even today um, the, the, the UK government chief scientific advisor is saying economics kind of rules you know in, in British uh, political life in terms of forms of evidence well um, the Israeli probably knew more people or could more easily access knowledge that yep. integrated different yeah forms of evidence and so there's something about the yep. fact not that they could tell good stories, but that they would have been in a world where the kind of integration of thinking across different forms of knowing was easier to do, at least for the elite, because of that um, more integrative thinking. And one of the reasons we like story listening now and think it's so valuable is that stories continue to be a way that moves across. You can tell a story or listen to a story about which has climate change in it, and it can include evidence about the physics but it also includes evidence about how society might live or how people might live collectively. Mm. And that's maybe that is going back 100 years in, in a way. So question two, to talk to the listeners at the level of not teaching them, but to kind of lay down some sort of fundamental theories and principles and approaches that are central to this notion of what you're talking about. So... I'll do a very brief overview of story listening and and then Sarah's going to talk more about anticipation. So um, briefly, what we've tried to do is make it easier to integrate, include story listening into debate and into advisory systems by introducing four functions of stories. So these are cognitive. So we're not talking about empathy and emotional effects, um, important as those are, and they're collective. So as Sarah said, we're not thinking about how one story impacts on one individual, but but more collective. And the four functions um, are um, around points of view and perspectives. That's the first one. The way that a story will convey information or evidence about the system that it is describing that is that it is containing uh, with multiple points of view so if you take an Ursula Le Guin short story called The Direction of the Road which is about told from the perspective of a tree and it's a different take on what what cars on roads look like or a a story might have four or five points of view about the same matter so that's and, and you can draw those out by critically listening to the story that's one another is the way that stories are connected to or create um, narrative networks so people sharing stories are themselves creating or being part of a network because of that sharing of the story sometimes it doesn't matter what the content is so an anti-vaxxer group um, is connected by stories about the harm from vaccines or misinformation about the harm from vaccines and they're still connected even though the content may be flawed on the other hand some stories are really powerfully enabling kind of uh, new insights into climate change or whatever it might be 
So the second function is around collective identities. And then the third is modelling. The classic for me is, is if you read novels of Jane Austen, you come away with some model of kind of middle-class life in Regency England. Uh, you, you kind of think you know the rules of the game a little bit about marriage and social advancement. The same is true for many other kinds of stories, that they convey, that they embody models of the way the world might work. So Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora is a model of a society in a zero-waste, zero-carbon world. It happens to be on a spaceship, but it's very thoroughly and completely imagined and described. Mm. And then the fourth function is anticipation. So it's points of view, identities, modelling, and then anticipation. But Sarah, do you want to talk more about anticipation? Yeah, absolutely. So... Whereas we we uh, perhaps don't know, and we'll find out more about the history of evidence as as per your last question, I did delve into the history of the connection between, particularly between science fiction and science fiction studies, what Frederick Pohl calls, uh, when he's recalling his time in the, the 20th century, futurology, which I guess you might think of as the, the ancestor of, of what we now think of as future studies. Mm. And what was really fascinating tracing that history was the absolutely intimate connection that there was in sort of mid to late 20th century between science fiction and early future studies. So, you know, Paul was already doing sort of talks on the future circuit when he heard about Rand and he flew straight there and talked to people who did Delphi and he and Arthur C. Clarke were, went to World Futures Studies Society events. You know, he, he says that there was what it was called a friendly symbiosis between the two and then something happened and and that the details of that something happening i think it still need to be written where the, the two sort of parted parted ways and when i looked at uh, peter bishop and co have a great kind of overview of future studies te- techniques and methods and and when i looked at that you know stories are there in a lot of the established methods in in the field so they're there in in casting back casting future mapping science fiction prototyping storytelling games we and we've sort of gathered all those together and called them narrative futures method so existing future mm-hmm. studies methods and techniques that incorporate stories or storytelling in some way. And we're not the only ones to identify this, but what we saw was missing where the gap was, was it was bringing science fiction, science fiction studies back in again, and recognizing that another narrative futures method could be using and reasoning from existing stories that exist in the speculative tradition, and using and engaging with those stories as what we call anticipatory narrative models. So to take Aurora again, If you're thinking about Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora as a narrative model and you're looking at climate change, it's a narrative model that pertains to the situation we're in now. But if you think of it as an anticipatory narrative model, then the interesting bit of the book is the AI, Mm. which controls the spaceship and is interestingly self-reflexive about its role and responsibilities in relation to governance of the human population. So there you've got a very interesting anticipatory narrative model about what it means to incorporate a sentient AI, but you can reverse that slightly and even just, you know, machine learning systems in the governance of human beings. So again, you've got some very interesting narrative or literary thinking there, which could inform decision making about AI moving forward. So and, and other people, you know, there are other people who are making this kind of argument. Jan Oliver Schwartz is doing it. Michael Burnham Fink. There was a great essay in Futures only last year in 2020 by Alessandro Fagnani and Zhaoli Song, uh, making the case that we need to incorporate and bring back in science fiction into future studies and, and need to take it seriously and learn 
how to do so. And that's one of the arguments that we're making in that anticipation chapter. What I'm hearing is that Futures has always had a relationship and a reliance, if you like, on science fiction, imagining, creative, narrative, that kind of thing. What you're asking the practitioners to do is to actually, rather than just read them as stories and have the normal emotional reader response to the story as to exciting, don't like it, you know, whatever, but you're actually taking us down a literary constructivist interpretation of trying to break stories down into particular aspects that unless you read for them, you may well miss them. Have I got it somewhat right? I think there's different kinds of listening or reading. So um, there's reading or listening or, or we talk about story imbibing to cover engaging because <laughs> we, we, we got, you know, we're like reading doesn't work if it's about a film. But viewing doesn't work if it's about a novel. So we talk about story imbibing, so taking stories in whatever medium they happen to be embedded in. I mean, that can, of course, be done purely for pleasure and affect and emotion and joy and escapism and all the uh, wonderful reasons why human beings have told stories and imbibed stories you know, throughout our existence as a species. But that doesn't mean that they don't also have, and this is a really important term for us, you know, cognitive value, that they don't, and, and maybe this is a, a different type of imbibing, but recognising that we also read stories to learn. as They're a form of sense-making. We get information from them, but we also organise information about the world through them. And taking that bit of, seri- of stories seriously is is really, really important. And doing that also collectively so the the kind of recognizing that this isn't about necessarily individual readers as claire's been saying but networks of story imbibers so one of the things i did in practice was i met riel miller uh, when claire and i were invited out to arebro in sweden to an um, ai and anticipation event and as a result um, ended up doing a story listening workshop at the futures literacy event in paris in december 2019 in fact my last trip abroad before the world shut down and actually, it was another Ursula Le Guin story that I used there, but um, this time, uh, the ones who walk away from Omelas. And, you know, we got into groups and we collectively read it and we thought about what that might mean for our understanding of economic systems and if someone has to suffer for a collective good and what decisions you make about your involvement or not within those economic systems. And so I'm sure everyone, I hope, in that workshop also very much just enjoyed the story. But I guess you're right in the sense that then we were thinking about it differently to if we'd all just been, you know, snuggled up on the sofa at home, reading it for pleasure. Sarah mentioned we met at work, actually at the Royal Society on uh, AI narratives. And it was one of the kind of real urgencies for me was that um, we were doing this incredibly thoughtful work about AI and machine learning with lots of scientists, people like Demis Hassabis from Google DeepMind, you know, absolute leading scientists. And of course, every time um, the Royal Society said or did anything about AI, um, it would be reported in the kind of mainstream media with pictures of the red-eyed robot from the Terminator. Mm. People tended to have three... um, views. One was it was completely irrelevant, didn't matter because everybody knows the difference between fact and fiction. At the same time, some people and even the same person at different times would say, oh my goodness, this is really dangerous because it is actually distorting anticipations of AI because it's focusing on the humanoid and the, the malign, you know, and it's therefore it's, it's a dangerous uh, direction of um, anticipation because um, it's focusing, um, it's sending the wrong signals and actually humanoid AI is, you know, a long way off and it's not what we should be thinking about. 
So either it doesn't matter or it matters and it's bad. And then very occasionally people say, well, it's a kind of figurative, um, this you know, un unstoppable force is actually about, um, you know, about big tech or it's about government. And it was just so sort of strange in a way that there was all this effort going into the careful analysis of where the, what the science was and where it was going. And yet nobody was really taking seriously the, the question about these other stories, which most people thought are quite powerful that are circulating and what kind of anticipations they might be bringing and what we could understand about them, not whether we like the Terminator, you know, which is a darn good movie in my view, but it was it kind of what it means and, and why it matters or how it matters. And it was this, Critical listening gets you beyond that. Do I like the movie? Into is there something here? And of course, then you 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 are forced to recognise that the villain is Skynet, which is a distributed system, uh, the real villain. And actually, distributed systems are much more important to think about in public policy terms at the moment than humanoid AI, because one exists and the other doesn't. Riel on the podcast has said a number of times. I've had him on a couple of times that we actually. In terms of what he calls his future's literacy, he says, you know, culturally, we are impoverished. We don't have a rich source of literacy to draw from. And part of what he's been about and promoting is this process of enriching our resource upon which we will build a literacy for anticipation, given uncertainty and technology and everything else. Yeah, and we talk about narrative literacy, which we should have a chat with Riel about how futures literacy and narrative literacy connect, because I think they do connect in very interesting ways. And he himself has talked in some of his writing about being futures literate, being comparable to being a very good reader, um, actually, in one of his essays. But where we're talking about narrative literacy, it means, as Claire's been saying with The Terminator, being able to understand how stories function and in what ways. And so not simply being, I guess, at, you know, at the mercy of them, mm. but being able to stand back and be, be critical and be reflective. And that's a really important skill today, especially with everything that's going on about post-truth and misinformation, you know, story listening and narrative literacy, give every citizen, every public uh, a way of not being buffeted in that storm, but getting control and being able to say, how is this story functioning? What effect is it having? Is it metonymically legitimate, which is another term we use, you know, does it represent a legitimate whole? And therefore, is it quite a, way, a good way for me to understand that whole? Or actually, is it totally distorting what's actually going on? And therefore, I need to, uh, you know, imbibe it carefully. So that, that would be a kind of uh, interesting relationship to futures literacy. Where I guess I disagree with Riel a little bit is we're not that culturally impoverished. We have, and, 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 and I'm questioning the we as well. You know, who's the we? Is that me and Claire sitting in Britain or is it <laughs> the, the world? But the world is full of amazing imaginings, be they embodied in futures practices, in existing novels or films or oral storytelling. And so it's perhaps and, and we talk about this, it's it's perhaps recognising that there are areas where we have what we call narrative deficits. So areas where there are lacks. And one of these might be, for instance, po you know, positive imaginings about the future in the face of, of, of the climate crisis. But there, there also might be perceptions of narrative deficits because actually people haven't been looking in the right place and dominant stories are overshadowing yep. 
really important other stories, be they indigenous stories in relation to climate change. And so the onus there is to, to look for where the rich imagining is happening that isn't yet being listened to or heard as well as it, it should and, or, or needs to be. Excellent. Thanks. Third question, the one where I get you to put down your expertise in story listening just for the moment and respond about what is emerging, what has been emerging, what have you been paying attention to emerge that has kind of energised and impelled you to move into this, this work? I mean, in a, in a way, it, it, it doesn't get away from the refrain because what's been engaging me is where and how stories are already beginning to be taken seriously and where actually we felt that, that there was a real need and hunger for a framework and a theory and a practice that could help people do that rigorously. And, and particularly this has, for me, been also areas where but, and this this links to what I've just said, where stories of peoples who might not ordinarily have been heard are becoming attended to. So Pupil Bish's chat with you on this podcast was wonderful to listen to and the work she's doing and using, you know, non-Western uh, storytelling methods as a, as a futures practice. Mm. There's also, for instance, the Arizona State University has a very interesting Centre for Science and the Imagination, and they have just appointed some climate fellows to try and create and tell different and perhaps more positive stories about the future in relation to climate. Or I was asked to go to a workshop hosted at, I think it was the Royal College of Engineering in London a few years ago, on AI and gender and the, the number of times stories and narratives and their role in determining who went into the profession, who stayed in, in AI research, who left, how decisions about data sets were impacting on different people. Stories were, were ever present in that, that day of brainstorming and thinking. So for me, it's, it's recognising that there's a shift to understanding that we need different ways of understanding the world. We need them still to be robust and rigorous. But we need to recognise that there's different forms of knowledge for different objects of things we need to know about. And so seeing all of that and recognising that then hopefully we could make a contribution, offer a framework for how to do some of that has actually been really exciting. This conversation is, is also making me think that some of this urgency, again, thinking a little bit back, I sort of came into science and government when climate change was still conceived as a single issue. And I mean, I, would, I don't think it's complete, I think it's very unprovable, but almost in the minds of physical scientists, because um, the world had got together and, you know, filled in the, or broadly filled in the hole in the ozone layer that was, you know, coming from CFCs. And because perhaps even because nuclear war had not happened, um, you know, then yet, um, in the kind of catastrophic way that had been imagined by people like Herman Kahn at Rand or in some of the novels of the kind of 50s and 60s, like on the beach. And that there was a sort of sense that if you told the terrible story, you know, loudly enough, you would avert the bad things happening. Mm. And I think within government and with many other scientists, you know, living through the realisation that that wasn't going to work in that simple way for climate change, that it was so pervasive and so 
at every physical scale and social scale that that it wasn't a story so much as many 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 stories and many many models and that the global models just have this huge gap between you know what they could say about global average surface temperature and who's ever noticed what global average surface temperature is you know it doesn't relate to the politics of a single one single nation on its own it's really hard to get people excited about, you know, 0.5 of a degree centigrade average. There was a kind of massive failure of, of science and of advice because it couldn't bridge the gap between the global dystopic story and the, the kind of information and insight and anticipations that were needed to translate that into action at a level that could act, which is countries and regions and cities. And that transition is is hugely happening and ha- has happened towards these these multiple stories, multiple models about what to do. I think we've now, I mean, like Sarah was saying, there's a massive untapped resource now of listening to stories that already exist, particularly those which aren't perhaps so mainstream, that already incorporates all sorts of insights, of models, of perspectives, and have already created networks of, of potential action that can make a difference in the next few years, which is exactly when we need them. Uh, Zia Sada and his colleagues at Post Normal Futures, one of the things that Zia said was, along with the rise in broader knowledge and communication has also been the rise in ignorance, both willful and just the nature of not knowing. And we've seen, particularly through the COVID time, the entire Trump presidency, this notion of fake news and and now the rise of conspiracy theories. Has that kind of played a role? Are you surprised by that? Or in fact, do you expect to see that and see more of it? Part of it is back to this, we're trying to reclaim some power against the seductive nature of stories. I mean, stories are wonderful, yeah, but they can almost sweep away your kind of rationality as you go with them. So part of what we're trying to do is build tools or bulwarks, things to use to to combat false, implausible, harmful stories, but also perhaps to help understand because, uh, I mean, certainly I've done quite a lot of public dialogue in Science Advice and in Futures and people are are always thoughtful. They may be thinking in ways that you don't agree with and may seem ludicrous given what you yourself might know, but they're never... They're never completely irrational or, or, or stupid uh, within their own terms. So having a degree of respect, even for people who believe things that are one, oneself you might believe are ridiculous, is not a good starting point. But understanding why they might be taking that point of view is, is usually a better way to proceed, as it were, better in the sense of more likely to be productive. It's a really important point to make because, you know, someone could turn around to us and say, you know, this is really dangerous what you're doing because you're trying to make us take stories seriously at a time when, you know, Trump is trying to get people to take stories seriously. Mm. And what we're doing is very much not the same as that. What we're trying to do is empower people to understand how and when a story is working in it. I mean, we could be very reductive, you know, in a kind of positive or evidentiary way and how and when it's not. So that is kind of for the story imbiber. But for the story listener, the person surveying the landscape, conspiracy theory is a very interesting example of a narrative network. It's a very interesting example of the way in which story listening taking that story and its sharing, not the content of the story, but the sharing of the story seriously, can give decision makers really important and helpful information about the kinds of publics that they're engaging with and how to engage with them. So I have a wonderful PhD student working on conspiracy theory at the moment. 
And if you look at some conspiracy theories, they're very much shared amongst, for instance, groups of people who feel disenfranchised by or distrustful of centres of power. And it might coalesce publics that aren't organised in orthodox terms, for instance, along the lines of age or gender or nationality. By taking stories seriously, it doesn't mean believing every story that's told is true. It means recognising that they have powerful cognitive and affective functions in the world and that if you start to map and trace and understand those you can make better decisions in relation to for instance the kinds of publics that you're engaging with and the way in which you might want to help them understand stories and the world. The other thing that perhaps we haven't said clearly enough is that in the kind of practical implications of what we're talking about here we're front and centre about plurality of evidence base so we're never saying listen to the story and take kind of, you know, take a view on the basis of that, but um, use it as one of many forms of evidence. So if there's evidence that vaccines are helpful and not harmful from clinical trials, that is a, you know, jolly good and important thing. You can use your thinking about the stories alongside of um, all these other forms of evidence, um, which are also important. Can I just go back for a moment to, I was talking about the kind of the shift in thinking about climate change from the kind of big global uh, models and global stories to the kind of more local. And I just thought we have a couple of examples in the book, which maybe illustrated a little, um, although Sarah can put it better than me, I'm sure. Um, one of them is Town uh, by David Eggers, which is an account of a man's experience during flooding in New Orleans. It connects a set of identities. I mean, he, he's a business person, a, a family man. He ends up being falsely accused of terrorism because of his, his ethnic origins. It shows different groups, different networks, different collective identities during the course of an extreme weather event. And it's that kind of connectedness that helps to complement, you know, whether the water rose by a metre or a metre and a half you know, and whether the net damage was, you know, X billion or Y billion. And to think differently, perhaps, about how you then might mobilise people in the future to work to rebuild differently in a, in a particular area. Or there's an earlier novel, um, Flight Behaviour, by Barbara Kingsolver, which is really thoughtful about how scientists and people living in a relatively poor area of the US, who are the site of scientific exploration in this case it's about butterflies and migration patterns that are being damaged by uh, weather climate change it's modeling the relationships between scientists and, and and people living in a particular locality in a really thoughtful way that would actually i think have helped many of the scientists or could help to to think differently about how they then go about their business so i just wanted to give a couple of examples yeah no they're great examples and you're absolutely right claire to to stress the, what we call a you know pluralistic evidence base, a kind of you know, ecosystem of, of knowledge and evidence where you're judging and using stories in relation to and alongside other forms of evidence, including the scientific. So this is not at all a project that is intended to, to devalue the scientific, absolutely not. It's just meant to recognise that there are other forms of knowledge that can complement and strengthen and, and form part of a pluralistic evidence base that can inform decision-making. Thank you. Fourth question is the communication question. I'm very interested as to how you designed and implemented and learnt how to communicate this 
to people who possibly didn't understand what it was you actually were writing about or why? Time will tell, won't it? <laughs> I'm smiling at the past tense, which is the assumption that we figured out how to do that. <laughs> I think it should be very much in the present. Yeah. What, 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 um, what we do kind of argue for there, and, and you, know, you can see beginnings happen in, in, in some ways, but lights happen a lot faster, is, is actual changes to the systems that enable uh, new ways of thinking to happen. So futures, so the systems that do futures work in the world at the moment, and the systems that provide advice at local or national or city or global level. You know, there are big systems in play, particularly for the sciences. You've got the IPCC, to take an obvious example. Uh, we looked at the 1.5 degrees special report, and it had no humanities authors out of 279. Some of them are counted twice because they count by chapter. Hmm. You could actually make some structural changes to things like that, or in the UK, the Science Advisory Group in um, Emergencies, SAGE, which is pivotal to emergency advice. Uh, you know, you could make structural changes to say, right, we've got an emergency, or we've got a very long-term massive problem like uh, like the IPCC. What do we do now that incorporate story listening and new forms of evidence? Because it is the case that the forms of evidence we've got are fantastic, but they're not sufficient. So changing advisory systems, there are all sorts of ways in which evidence is synthesized now for, for public use, kind of incorporating story listening into that. So we've got kind of some systemic suggestions, uh, but we're still practicing on actually explaining uh, what it means in conversations like this. Well, but Claire's given a, a wonderful kind of what in my world would be, would be called a performative um, answer, which you know, <laughs> does it rather than describes it, which is yeah. the performative answer in relation to, you know, practitioners is not so much this is the theory, but these are the things you could do to mm. uh, to to change, to make to make changes that we, we think would be positive or beneficial. And what that performative answer shows, if I can then do the, the meta bit, is what I, I call in other work um, uh, lexical flexibility. So you have to be, able, and and I think actually that people talked about this as well. You have to be able to describe what you do differently depending on who you're describing it to. True. So for practitioners, for policymakers, you have to you know, give, give them the things that they can do. If for me, maybe persuading humanities people, different kind of arguments about the history of the value of the humanities, skepticism about in the humanities about. Uh, collaboration about function um, as in some way going to devalue the, the, the academic freedom or what we do so it's it's and, and to come back to the, I guess the theme of your podcast is it's telling a different story or framing things differently depending on who you're speaking to so that they can more easily take from what you're saying what's pertinent and relevant to them. What's been the initial responses that you've noted because clearly this is while the book is still to come, so to speak, or very, very close to coming. But but clearly people are already engaging with the idea. Very pleased that it's been very positive so far. A common pattern of response is this fills a gap. Mm. This uh, provides a way of thinking and tools for thinking that we have all wanted, but we haven't had, and is going to then enable us to do the things that we want to do. And that us is from you know, scientists and geographers working in climate science to Rachel Adams is a wonderful friend of mine in South Africa who's working with the Social Science Research Council there and trying to incorporate local knowledges into decision making there. So a, a positive response. We should be honest and say it's, you know, we did circulate the book for quite extensive peer review because it's so intersector and interdisciplinary. And we, we got some robust and very helpful responses there. 
which have helped us very much shore up things like that we've already talked about about how we what we're doing is you know different to the the, the arguments that circulating around fake news and post truth how what we're doing mm. is not intended to decenter or deprivilege scientific evidence and and scientific knowledge so that was really helpful in, in enabling us to clarify some of the perhaps slightly more controversial contentious elements of the book's arguments Let's close with talking about the book. Tell us a bit about when people are going to start seeing it and also what is going to accompany the book because I can't imagine it's just going to be a case of all the books published, we finished. I would have imagined there are things you are going to do to encourage its take-up and exploration. I don't think we've sort of discussed this in quite the way that you're asking the question, so it's very helpful. Um, I mean, first of all, we're uh, concentrating on creating um, different accounts. As Sarah said, and because it's because we have been so determined that it should be rigorous, and not least because it's quite threatening potentially, or it seemed to be received as, as threatening from time to time. You know that that, that we were kind of going to trying to knock down the whole scientific evidence. F- Edits, yeah, um, and also that we were telling we were telling humanities scholars that they couldn't carry on being independent of government. You know, neither of which is true um, at all. So, so we're focusing on giving a shorter accounts. You know, aimed at practitioners, people working on the advisory interface with governments or with cities or with global bodies, with um, researchers in particular different areas. I mean, there's, there's massive scope for for new research questions, but actually his, the historical questions. You know, how can we look back, uh, as you were suggesting, but look back even just to the 20th century and, and learn more about, about how stories um, have created the kind of models or points of view that have shifted public debates, and you know, what would that tell us? There's a a, a massive Massive set of opportunities for what I would call innovative practice. So, you know, let's get some bits of experimentation. Um, I'm, I'm just now working with the International Network for Government Science Advice, and they're really grappling. One of the key learnings so far from the pandemic is this need to have multidisciplinary evidence better and more rapidly accessible. You know, epidemiology is sen- essential, but it's not sufficient. Mm. So, I'm hoping at least to begin to work with some innovative practitioners on on, on kind of actually applying this, building in ways to apply it, and then learn from that practice and as Sarah mentioned there are some examples of that happening already so maybe Sarah our sort of different slightly different natural orientations will will show themselves I'm thinking how can we use this in some practice and you're perhaps thinking already about the next next kind of research questions Uh, I don't know is that fair um <laughs> both, both and and that's one of the the refrains mm-hmm. of the book is mm-hmm. both and not mm-hmm. either or you know we've added at the end of our website on the contact page you know we're really interested to do more work you're absolutely right peter the book isn't the end it's it sounds very corny but it's hopefully the beginning mm. We invite people to get in touch with us who are excited and inspired or, you know, find deeply useful the ideas that they've come across so that that we could have any number of kind of spin out and connected projects, be they practical ones or research ones. Uh, And so, you know, we invite listeners, if you're interested, get in in touch with us. We welcome working with people uh, because, of course, we don't have the expertise across everywhere that this might be applicable. So uh, we're always happy to learn and collaborate. Uh, I guess as an, as an individual, as a literary scholar, uh, I'm writing other academic papers about what I'm calling functional criticism. So ch- changing or thinking about 
uh, not changing, uh, adding to the the where, the what, and the why and the how humanities scholars do what they do. And each of those changes to the where, the what, the why, and the how might affect method, might affect uh, language, might affect communication, whilst still preserving the the skills and the methods of analysis and engagement that that make our disciplines what they are. So there's there's a, a sort of internal academic thread ongoing from from this, which is perhaps, uh, and this is why I'm hesitating about going into more detail, because probably not very interesting or of relevance to some of uh, of your listeners. So again, it's about it's about which story do we tell, and I think that the practitioner the practitioner story is the is the one that might be most interesting to. And Sarah, you, you along the way though, you 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 have already done things like your work on autonomous flight, haven't you? On anticipation. Oh yes, thank you. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I'm trying to do in my own work is put into practice uh, some of the things that I've learned from uh, the wonderful engagements I've had with people in future studies. So. I uh, did a, a project with a great postdoc called Olivia Belton, um, which was to some extent inspired by Stuart Candy's work and The Thing from the Future and mm-hmm. his use of games, um, which I came across in, in Riel's um, collection. And so we, uh, well, Olivia, I should give her the credit, uh, designed a, a storytelling game that we used then to start to investigate anticipatory assumptions about uh, the future of autonomous flight um, and uh, that paper came out in in futures late 2020 early 2021 so I'm also and I guess that's changing that the how of what literary studies does is um, what would it mean to bring in different methods into literary studies and use combine our skills with those methods in order to do perhaps futures type work but in a in a slightly different context. So um, I, I'm uh, always interested to to play and experiment with different ways of doing things. And I'm learning a lot from uh, the knowledge that I've gained over the last year from futures practitioners within and, and outside of the academy. And we should say there's a the book has its own website where we're putting the things that we do uh, or links to them as we do them. So. Excellent. Yeah. And also trying to do them in different formats, trying to do things that people can read, things that people can watch. We were about to put things that people can listen to and then realised we couldn't use listen because it's such an important word in the book. So we've got a here, a, a here section, H-E-A-R section of the website, which sounds, it sounds a little odd, but it was, it was uh, it's one of the senses in which when you start to create a new framework, you start to create a new language. And so we have a massive uh, and very important glossary at the back of the book, which Claire was very insistent from the beginning that we had. And I sort of let her get on with it. And by the time we got to the end, I was like, thank you so much for making sure that we had this because of course different words and, and especially in future studies which is still as you say a kind of uh, a discipline that's evolving and and in flux different words mean different things to different people the same word means different things to different people so we, we've tried to sort of pin down our language a little bit and pinning down exactly what listen means in our context has been one of the one of the things that we've had to do Great. On behalf of the FuturePod community, I'd like to congratulate you on the book for a start. And I really encourage the FuturePod community to engage with the book, take it up with their respective associations and federations to discuss it. It sounds like a very, very valuable contribution to the field. But to you too, thank you for taking some time out of your busy days to talk to the FuturePod community. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, and a, an absolute honour to be included yeah. with um, amongst all the other wonderful people that you've <laughs> spoken to. We, yeah, we've learned a lot from listening to the the podcast. So thank you. 
This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.